Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Sam Hart, a researcher, organizer, and curator working in various capacities at the Interchain Foundation and other internet. He produced several early blockchain art exhibitions and artworks, and today contributes where he can to projects by Folia, Left Gallery, Further Field, and other independent art organizations. So welcome to the show, Sam. Hi, it's nice to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, I'm delighted to have you on. Um, I mean, I've been following your various forms of work closely over the last several months. uh, And I got to say, you were sort of my um, introduction into the world of of non-fungible tokens. So I really appreciate that. And I really appreciate you making the time to come here today to chat with me. I think it was was inevitable, but... Uh, I appreciate you attributing that to me. For for listeners who may not already be familiar with the many different areas in which you're working, I wonder if you could just kind of tell us a little bit about yourself, what your background is, and how you became interested in kind of blockchain, cryptocurrencies, and non-fungible tokens. Uh, so I I grew up in an artist household. My my parents are both artists. Um, my my mother did like large scale land art out in Mexico. Um, my father uh, did um, printmaking, stone lithography, and um, and yeah, I was uh, you know really kind of supported as in doing creative work early on. Um, my um, both my parents and en- ended up they. They didn't end up in the um, the fine art world. My mom is now a, uh, an art teacher, and, and my dad is a stonemason. And um, and kind of early on, I I I thought that you know I, I really loved doing art, but should maybe like professionally um, do something that um, that was a bit more kind of monetizable. Um, so I ended up going into um, the sciences. Um, in uh, at university, I I studied chemical physics and did um, protein folding research. Uh, went on to do um, some uh, early genomics research, um, and kind of throughout the course of that, um, I you know really enjoyed that work. But um, I was, was kind of always had my hands in art, art projects. Um, it was, you know, kind of remained a passion, um, throughout my professional life. And, um, when I moved to New York to do, um, you know, for a job, I ended up, um, starting an artist magazine online publication called avant.org. Um, and, that was kind of my side gig for a little while, just working with artists and doing like long form art publication. Um, they were kind of artist projects in themselves. Um, and I had a, a lot of fun doing that. I was, you know, spent a ton of time just really kind of drawing out these, these works with artists, um, really kind of understanding their thinking, 
helping them communicate that. Um, and yeah, the, the pieces themselves like really were artworks and I'm really proud of a lot of those. Um, and it, it, it kind of helped a bunch of artists start their careers in a way that I'm also like, I'm also really proud of. Um, so I did that for, for a couple of years, like while I was still, still working, um, in, in the laboratory. Um, and yeah, the, I mean, the, the topic of the magazine was, was kind of art technology politics. Um, I moved to, to New York city, like right after, um, or really right as Occupy Wall Street was, was starting. And, um, I kind of like see, um, I, I really see like cryptocurrencies and, um, and that kind of generation of thinking that came out of Occupy Wall Street as, as like having, um, some shared history, which is, you know, the, the U S financial crisis. Um, and so I, I feel like I, I was kind of steeped in that when I was, was living in New York, I was exposed early on to, um, the, the kind of beginnings of the platform cooperative movement and, um, and, that uh, kind of made its way into the the magazine and, and a bunch of the um, the writing that was going on, and um, and so I ended up meeting a bunch of people who were kind of primed to be interested in um, in like the subject matter. Um, so we were all, we were already kind of talking about alternative forms of organization. Um, kind of capital structures, uh, you know, kind of information flows, uh, the dark web, like all of it was kind of like fair game for, um, the magazine. And so we were, we were primed to, to be thinking about, um, a lot of the subject matter that is, has kind of come to the fore today. Um, and then in 2000, 16, I was asked to participate in an exhibition at the Guggenheim called um, Ozone Futures Market. And it was a really weird <laughs> exhibition. It was like mostly an online exhibition. It was modeled after a, um, a decentralized marketplace. Um, and this was right around the time of the Ethereum launch. It was very much inspired by and kind of like uh, projecting out a future of like what the blockchain ecosystem could be. And so a bunch of, um, a bunch of people that, you know, kind of familiar names um, participated in that early on. Uh, and that kind of, I, the prompt there was, was basically to like interact with this system in some way. And so I ended up writing like some, um, some like trading software for this marketplace. And, you know, I was like one of the only like bots on the, the market. And so ended up kind of like, you know, gaming the system and using that as like a, there's like a leaderboard and kind of use that as like an advertising platform. Um, and then did a whole bunch of other things kind of around that, um, around that exhibition format, um, which was a lot of fun. Um, but, best thing about it was I just like met a whole bunch of really wonderful people that went on to, to do work in and around the blockchain space. And it, and it just kind of like got the wheels turning for me like, Oh, this is really interesting. And, and, um, I, I'd 
was following and had some exposure to blockchain prior to that, but it, it, it like forced me to, to, um, be a little bit more involved in the practice and, and the, and kind of understanding it a, a bit more like as a medium that I could work with. Um, at the time, I mean, running an artist magazine, I was also just like really obsessed with like the, the history of artist publication. And this is where like conceptual art really kind of comes in for me. So, I mean, we were publishing a bunch of things on sound art, which is like very in the tradition of conceptual art as well. But um, the publication format, artist publication is like intimately tied with the history of, at least in the, in the West, um, the history of, of conceptual art. Um, so, you know, moving from the the gallery into the the publication, artists could, um, presumably have a little bit more control over, um, means of distribution and, um, and, uh, monetization. It also, you know, it dematerialized the, the art object and, and pushed the, the, the location of the artwork, um, from physical space into, um, you know, publication, but also in, into like the more conceptual realm. <clears throat> um, so with that, um, with that kind of in mind, I saw the blockchain and I was like, okay, a new form of publication. Uh, it's a shared, um, you know, it's, it's a shared publication format, globally distributed. Um, it's, uh, you know, chronological, um, there, there's like a lot of interesting affordances here. And, um, you know, in one way that, you know, in one way that you can look at this is like a, as a currency system and, um, and a monetary system. Um, but another is like a censorship resistant form of publishing, um, and like a replicated database. So, um, and that gives you like a, some capabilities that are really interesting, like building kind of institutional forms and, uh, means of like access control and, and whatnot. So anyway, out of, um, out of this, uh, this kind of strange exhibition, I ended up meeting a bunch of people and, and who were, who were kind of starting, um, blockchain projects. Um, the first of which was this project called foam, which is kind of like a hybrid between like GPS and a mesh network. Um, and I ended up helping them write their white paper cause they like needed someone who could do technical writing and, um, just got, it was just a lot of fun. I was like really interested in the subject matter is learning so much and <clears throat> kind of got, pulled into the industry more and more because more people were doing projects. They needed this kind of help. Um, so I was like writing white papers and, um, and basically got just a kind of bored with the like academic, um, ladder and, and finally like used that as an opportunity to, to move into the industry. Um, 
so I did a bunch of consulting work for a while um, after leaving um, leaving academia, and uh, you know continued like doing uh, white paper writing, mechanism designs, and, like brand product strategy stuff. Um, I moved to Berlin. Um, I used that as an opportunity to, to move to Berlin as well. I had, had never lived outside the country. Um, and um, I worked for uh, a project called Radical, um, which is like a decentralized GitHub. Um, and you know, did some consulting for them for a while. Uh, yeah, various projects kind of, as the pandemic was was just starting, um, a friend of mine, Billy Renekamp, um, invited me to join the Interchain Foundation, which is the the project that, or the institution that kind of stewards the the Cosmos ecosystem. And uh, I was kind of seeing a global pandemic like starting to unfold, and I was like, yeah, maybe it's a good time to to like have a full-time job instead of um, doing freelance contracts. So I joined the Interchain Foundation. Um, also, Billy's amazing. And I, you know, one of my closest friends and I, it was an opportunity to work with him. So um, joined, uh, we kind of like rebuilt the foundation from, from scratch. It, uh, there was only three employees at the time, him and uh, um, basically like the finance accounting department. Um, and yeah, there was just like a lot of work to be done there. So I spent like the entire pandemic, like really hustling to, to turn that organization around and, you know, hire and, and just build up processes and, and, you know, there's the cosmos ecosystem now is like in a much different place than it was at that time. So it's been a very interesting, um, interesting, uh, kind of phase transition with with interchain. Um, that was a long introduction, but I feel like there's actually I haven't like really talked about the kind of blockchain art piece. So maybe I'll just say a word about that. Um, so the I was part of this exhibition early on Guggenheim. Um, following that, uh, kind of as part of the magazine, kind of on my own, I, I ended up doing a bunch of curation uh, of crypto blockchain artwork, which was really a kind of non-existent field at the time. There was a couple people doing, doing pretty quirky things. Um, this is right around the time that um, the Further Fields publication came out, Artists Rethinking the Blockchain. And, um, and so I was part of a kind of early group that was just starting to understand like the mechanics of what was going on. Um, so, uh, I mean, Ruth Catlow, Furtherfield, Rhea Myers, um, Billy Renekamp, I would count in that, that group as well. And, um, and so I ended up curating uh, several exhibitions um, on behalf of Consensus, the, um, the kind of development studio that develops MetaMask and, and other products. And, um, and exhibited some work that, you know, early like contract, smart contract artwork and things that, um, I mean, the, 
the conversation today is like really kind of dominated by NFTs, but a lot of the, the works that that I was exhibiting there were like more idiosyncratic and and really trying to understand like what is even possible there. Um, I think there's some really rich territory that's um, that hasn't really like made it into the contemporary. Right, uh, I guess has been like overshadowed a bit by NFT world, but um, yeah, maybe we can talk about that a little bit later. Uh, yeah, and then like today, I have kind of come back to not come back to, but I, I you know remain active in the um, the art world and the crypto art world. I um, I kind of advise um, a couple of projects, um, including Folia, um, Left Gallery, and Further Field, which are are really you know I'm just kind of close friends with. Um, with all those parties and, and just try to help them wherever I can because I'm, you know, a fan and want to see them succeed. So that's quite a story. I'd like to, for a moment, get go back to the beginning of the story that you just told, because you mentioned that like your interest in the blockchain sort of grew out of the Occupy Wall Street movement to some degree. And I think in general, people think of those as being sort of diametrically opposed uh, so I'd be really interested to hear you talk about how you think that they inform each other, uh, at least in your experience and in your thinking. Um, to be clear, I wasn't, um, I wouldn't say I was like super heavily involved in the Occupy Wall Street movement. I'd like just moved to New York. I was still kind of like figuring out, you know, my whole deal there. But it was, it was like, you know, I, I went there and I, it, it was definitely like, uh, very present in my consciousness um, while I was like being introduced to New York city for the first time. And um, yeah, I, the way that I see that, how I make that connection is um, um, Occupy Wall Street was, was um, precipitated by financial crisis um there's obviously like underlying issues as well but like that um that was an important kind of driver and um the occupy wall street movement was um i think it would was a locus of um of uh, a set of like thinking and and organizational practices and and like uh, ideas about like uh, democratic control um, that um, didn't necessarily materialize like as Occupy Wall Street, but um, made its way into um, the practices of of maybe a a second wave. Um, uh, and and one of those I, I would say is is the the platform cooperative movement and um, and so the the new school at the time which is you know like in Manhattan um, was hosting workshops and and discussions uh, you know in reaction to Occupy Wall Street and kind of pose the question of like, oh, well, you know, w- what if there was like a greater degree of, of democratic control and accountability like in, um, 
in the platforms that we use today, like both financial platforms and the, and the social platforms that, um, that are really kind of becoming more important and, and dominant in our lives. So, um, the platform co-op movement, I, I think has like a lot of relevance to the current DAO and crypto protocol conversation. It's, um, there aren't that many people who are like drawing that connection explicitly, you know, Nathan Schneider is like really the, I think the symbolic like person there, but at least a lot of the ideas like have made their way into, into some of the, like the ideals and, um, and the, um, yeah, just how people think about like what it means for like a, a community, a set of users or, or stakeholders to, um, to govern a, a platform. So what is it? a DAO and how do you see the structure of a DAO being informed by that notion of democratic or collective governance? What is a DAO? Um, So a DAO is a a collection of people um, that are coordinating together. Um, That coordination is mediated and symbolized in some way by um, recording on the blockchain um that is an extremely broad definition but that's kind of how i i understand it um i i'm one of those who's of the opinion that like bitcoin is a DAO. um so the the difference between a a two person multi-sig and Bitcoin is like pretty vast. And, um, and I think that DAO ends up being a catch all for, um, for that entire range. Um, I guess in reference to like democratically controlled platforms, um, you maybe want to think of something like at least of, of, um, moderate scale where, um, where that coordination um, and and enforcement um, and and transparency is uh, is kind of like important for uh, a degree of accountability of that platform. How do they generally work? I mean, is there like are there like formats or or elements that are drawn from kind of offline or off chain type? interactions and and when people say DAO, what do they what do they mean i mean what what does it stand for and and you know how and why was that terminology adopted um so DAO stands for decentralized autonomous organization um there is a um a kind of legacy history for why that was uh that terminology came up um the first term as far as i understand was that was used as decentralized autonomous corporation, which I believe was coined by Dan Larimer. Um, but that kind of evolved into organization as people maybe interpreted, uh, that the kind of function of, um, of that entity as being, you know, more broad than what a a corporation might be doing. Um, yeah, so the, that, term has, has kind of grown in in size and, and scope 
um, which, you know, both good and bad. It, it, I think it's really benefited a lot from, from uh, kind of containing uh, many hopes and dreams. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, how does it function? Um, uh, so there, um, you know, requires a, a blockchain in, you know, at least uh, in a kind of strict sense. Uh, one could have a, a group coordination without a blockchain, but may not want to call it a DAO. And um, you know, typically people will have accounts um, with that chain, uh, within that blockchain. And um, the DAO uh, uh, will do some form of um, capability management or access control. Um, and, uh, and, and that can um, allow that group to do things like uh, voting um, in order to, to execute a function of some kind, you know, say pay out someone from the treasury um, or uh, any number of other, um, uh, you know, functions. So, add a member um, or, uh, you know, execute a smart contract on, you know, on behalf of the DAO, um, uh, evolve the rules uh, of, of the DAO itself, um, you know, upgrade its own contracts or um, uh, change some, some rule set for, uh, you know, voting quorum or something like that. Returning to some of, your own work in this in this context and sort of as you developed an interest in this kind of blockchain based art practice you know when you describe the the magazine that you were publishing and the kinds of projects it was featuring and your interest in these contractual and organizational relationships i, I couldn't help but feel the spirit of Seth Siegel Lab out there kind of looking over the project because it reminds me so much of what he was doing in the in the 70s both in terms of you know the publications in terms of using art publications as a medium for conceptual art like an intentional medium for conceptual art but also conceptualizing contracts themselves as a form or a, a medium for artistic practice, which I think is something that's really under-recognized in terms of what he was doing. He's usually described as a curator, and I see him as really being a sort of an artist manager almost. Um, I, I wonder, like, sort of, was he someone you were thinking about? Was that a model that was in, meant anything to you? Or sort of how do you see that body of work in relation to what you've been doing? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think any conceptual art publication nerd is is like immediately going to go to Seth Seaglobe, and I was you know, count myself among among those. I like read his biography and just was like really into pretty much you know the entire his entire catalog. I um, I was friends with the uh, one of the MoMA art librarians and like went into a bunch of the. Um, kind of back catalog of, of the artists that he worked with and, and um, had a lot of fun just kind of rediscovering that history and like using that to um, as a model. 
and you're absolutely right. The, the artist rights transfer agreement was hugely um, important uh, for me, um, both as um, both as like a, an artist project um, in kind of historical document, but also like in my own practice. I um, as soon as you start taking on a, an editorial or curatorial role, I, I think you you quickly realize that you have some obligation to the, the artists that you work with to, to make sure that they um, are really getting something out of, out of the relationship and, and, um, and, you know, specifically like that their financial conditions are, are, are really satisfied. Um, and, um, and so I, I really wanted yeah, I mean, I, I was also working on that. I wanted to make sure that the artists that I was working with, like, could support themselves and make the art that they wanted to make. And, um, and uh, you know, so we did some experiments there. Um, and um, the, the blockchain part, um, it looked like the shape of, of something where you could you could really... Uh, start to to have a you know just change the system that that you're working within. Oh, like if you can have an artist contract like the artist rights transfer agreement on the blockchain that can mediate secondary sales. Like, well, you, you can just make this work. And and so indeed, like I I um, you know gave an early talk about this exact thing. I, okay. We have smart contracts. Well, um, if, you know, if, if we have this kind of facility within the medium, like this can be really powerful as a, a way to kind of restructure the art economy. Um, and that's something that I got super excited about. Um, I ended up, uh, kind of connecting to Raya Myers early on who had, you know, the exact same thought and, and actually made an early prototype of this. Um, and now you see, um, you see, you know, major platforms with, um, that, that have incorporated secondary sales into, into the platform itself. So, so OpenSea and, and Zora and things like this. Um, and that has been wonderfully gratifying to, to kind of, to actually see that like manifested in um, in the way that the art market is is developing um, the blockchain art market. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit more about that presentation that you gave, which I've read sort of the the paper that feels kind of like the residue of of the presentation. Um, and there's a lot of ideas packed in there, this being one of them. I wonder if you could expand on a couple of the other threads that were important to you in the moment, um, kind of reflect on which of those ideas have been picked up and been influential and talk a little bit about sort of where you've come since then. Yeah. So uh, I was asked by a friend to give a talk at the MIT Media Lab in 2018, I believe. And... Um, nobody there knew anything about blockchain at the time. So it was, um, except, except for like the, the DCI, um, 
who's like wholly kind of interested in Bitcoin. Um, so it was a it was a fun context of you know, kind of presenting to a very smart group about about a new subject, and um, I kind of pulled in some. Um, you know, I did the one-on-one on like, what is, what is blockchain? <laughs> what are we actually talking about? What is, what's kind of interesting and unique about this medium? Um, I talked about the artist rights transfer agreement. You know, there's, there's things that you can do with this that are, that are really kind of novel and, and, you know, gestures that, that were made previously, we can maybe actually kind of incorporate them into the, um, the, the kind of transactional structure. Um, and then I, um, yeah, kind of just went off a little bit on like, uh, how this is a pretty interesting space for conceptual art in particular. So, um, I ended up including a several references that, that I think are, are quite popular now. And it's been fun to see those. I don't know if they're like directly attributable to me, but it did at least like kind of consolidate them all in one place. So one is the Walter Benjamin's, um, uh, work in of art in the age of mechanical reproduction, which is a kind of staple of of any like um, discussion of like the value of art, um, but it, it really is, is kind of come back in the blockchain context now, um, as well as uh, you know some discussion of Hito Stierl's work and um, and uh, this piece by Mackenzie Wark. Um, uh, my collectible ass, which is now like promoted heavily by the, the Zora people. And um, yeah, there's, I mean, so I can summarize a couple of the, those ideas. Um, I mean, the Mackenzie work one um, is kind of questioning the, um, the nature of, of value, I guess, uh, in a, in a world where there is, um, uh, like zero margin distribution um, and, and basically saying that the, a, a popular work is a valuable work. Um, so there's this like mimetic value that, um, that we should really be thinking about um, and, and potentially like decoupling the, um, the, the ownership uh, from, from the, of, uh, uh, from from the distribution is is something that's that's interesting and and maybe novel about blockchain um, and uh, right so the an NFT could be you know a one of one but if it's like known globally then it has you know it could be quite valuable um, of course that was written before NFTs but it uh, yeah the, I mean that piece is really kind of presaged a lot of um, how people think about it today. Um, one of the other things that I, uh, that I included in that lecture, which I is a thought experiment that I like really love telling it's a um, yeah, it's a thought experiment by this experimental philosopher, Jesse Prince. And uh, goes goes like this. So um, you walk uh, up to the the Louvre. You've never been there before, and you know it's been your lifelong dream to to see the Mona Lisa. 
you're you're leaving the country in at uh, you know the next day, and so this is your only opportunity. Uh, at the door, the the security guard says, um, you know, we only have an hour left. Um, there's been a very unfortunate accident, and um, the the Mona Lisa has been completely incinerated. Um, so you can either go all the way to the end of the West Wing and see the the ashes of the Mona Lisa, or you can go the exact opposite direction on the all the the furthest east. We have a an identical reproduction of the Mona Lisa that is indistinguishable even by experts. Um, so, you know, you only have time to to visit one. Which one do you which one do you visit? Um, and uh, most people say that they would go see the ashes. Um, so there's something there's something you know it's kind of an extension of this like aura idea. Um, but there's there's something significant about uh, the the kind of normative circumstances of um, of the of this particular um, you know object uh, and and the visitor's like emotional connection to it. You know the they believe that it's authentic and. Um, and they want to visit it because of, of that emotional connection. Um, so the, I, at least for me, it, it's like less about the, the hand of the artist than it is about um, the kind of normative like uh, environment and, and like the personal belief in, uh, in that history. So um yeah, and and I think that that like that idea actually ends up being kind of important for for NFTs as well. Like the uh, you know, so as as you like to say, like the thing is not intellectual property as such. Um, you, you know, you're not really owning anything in in the legal sense, but you're owning owning it in the normative sense and. And that's really more important in a, in a lot of ways um, for art. So, I, I mean, I couldn't agree more that it seems like this is a moment in which, as has so often been the case in the past, that essay by Walter Benjamin seems prescient or at least relevant in some way. I wonder if you could talk a little bit more specifically about how you think the kind of themes or concepts or ideas expressed in that paper and developed since then are informed by, or maybe even changed by the development uh, of this new market in NFTs and the kind of the normative backdrop that enables it to be possible in the first place. Yeah, I, I guess I don't agree with everything that paper sets out, but the, um, I mean, I, I think I was using it more as a device in that lecture. Um, people, so the the main concept from from this paper is is the notion of like a of an aura, um, and um, the aura of of a particular artwork, and and the the kind of connection to the hand of the master, um, and 
honestly, the, the like argument that he's making in the paper is like, this is kind of like an incidental point. He's talking about like the, the um, mechanical reproduction and, and mass production technology. And, and so the, um, I, I feel like that aura piece has been kind of cherry picked um, uh, subsequently to, you know, for, for other purposes. Um, but, but it is really helpful in, when like introducing people to uh, the, the concept of um, of the the kind of social circumstances that in which art is produced, and you know, a, a just an answer to that question of like, uh, you know, this artist like just you know threw some like red paint on canvas, like my three-year-old daughter could do that. Like, like I could do that. Like, why is that important? It's important because there is a set of circumstances that in which that's produced, um, that set of circumstances includes who is producing it. Um, there's typically, you know, a, uh, a set of works that have, have built up to this. There's a, there's a kind of like conversation with, um, with other artists that are producing similar work, um, with the museum setting or the gallery setting with contemporary culture. Um, so the, the works like this end up being a, a kind of social device, um, that are situated in a specific place and time. Um, and that's why, you know, they're important rather than, uh, you know, the, the kind of visual output in, in many cases. Could you talk a little bit more about your own work in this developing NFT space and sort of how it reflects your perspective on what you think NFTs are for, could be for what they mean and what it means to engage with this space as an artist or a conceptual artist specifically? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I... I feel like I was doing a bunch of, <laughs> I was curating a bunch of work early on that was like parallel to the initial NFT development and was kind of looking at the earliest NFT work and like not super enthusiastic to be perfectly honest. Um, it my, my first, my initial kind of read on it was that it was a, um, it was the the kind of trivial uh, traditional media to to like new media transition. You know, what if we put a, a photo on the blockchain? Like, and um, and honestly, a lot of work. I, I still I feel kind of similarly about. Um, but I, I do. I, I think in the last couple of years, there there have been some really um, my, my thinking has, has really evolved on that. I found works that I, I really think are substantive and, and like bring a lot to that format. And, um, and in general, I think that NFTs, you know, it goes way beyond art, like NFTs on the blockchain are, uh, they are 
digital rights effectively. Um, so there, there's a, an incredible amount of potential that um, is opened up by, by that um, primitive. Uh, but my, I mean, so I, I made a bunch of early works, um, one of which was called um, One Token, which was, it was like 2017, 2018. I, um, it was like really kind of towards the tail end of the ICO madness. And I mean, this sounds like kind of trivial at this point, but it was like a bit of a, a kind of, poking fun at, at that phenomenon. We're like, oh, well, what if we had an ICO for for just one token? And, you know, what what do you, what does that mean? You know, the idea behind an ICO is that ever, you know, you're distributing like um, ownership of some future platform. This thing is like obviously useless. So, you know, does that mean like, it's just an art, you know, at some point you've just collapsed this thing. So it's so, so useless. It's now, it, it now becomes art. Right. Um, so we did that. Uh, we, we did a whole like custom auction contract and made an ERC 20 tokens before the ERC 721 standard made an ERC 20 token that had, uh, you know, the, the, uh, number of decimals modified and basically there was just like one token in circulation um indivisible so uh ended up, so basically pre nft nft um so that was uh that was my maybe my first foray into nfts um and um kind of forgot about nfts for a second <laughs> and then um uh more recently i i mean i uh like i said earlier my you know very close friends have been kind of in and around art nft space for a while harm vondendorpel is, is a close friend um living in berlin and um we've like we curated a show together that um and so i've been like involved in in his uh in development of his platform a bit um, and, um, I also, uh, made a work with the Folia, um, people, uh, Billy Renekamp, Dan DeNorsch and, um, and Everett, uh, and that one was that, so that, that project was called Kudzu or the Folia virus. And, um, this was, I guess, my like reintroduction to, to NFTs I, and kind of a retroactive, like, okay, we can do more with NFTs than people are doing with NFTs. Like, let's think about the medium a little bit more expansively. So the idea behind this one is that um, we, we modify the transfer function of the NFT uh, to make it so that instead of instead of actually transferring it, um, you mint to the person that you're transferring to. Uh, and so the, the token ends up being non-transferable. And once it's in your wallet, it's there forever. Um, and you can only spread it. So it just, it's just an infectious, um, infectious like 
you know, viral mode of, of distribution. And, um, and that, yeah, that was supposed to be a kind of like nice playful way to help to have people think a, a little bit more expansively about, about the NFT as a medium itself. Um, and, and in this way, like we, we, you know, we modified the, the, the set of rights that, um, that the NFT, um, allows. Uh, so instead of being able to transfer, you, you actually are able to replicate, um, and that, that kind of ends up with a different kind of structure, um, than, than you had before. So in relation to the NFT market, I can't help but wondering, do you think it's a market or potentially many different markets? And to the extent that we're actually talking about many different markets, to what extent have we actually seen those markets emerge? Or is the market still looking in some cases to figure out what it's a market for? Um, the NFT art market, you mean, or, or just more broadly? More broadly. Um, yeah, I, I guess I would say it's, it's, I see the NFT market evolving into a set of markets. Like if these are digital, you know, representations of digital objects and digital rights, then like the, and you kind of imagine this really becoming a, a substrate for, for much of like online mediated access and ownership, um, then that implies that, that it really is a more than one market. It's, it's a, um, it's like an ecosystem. Um, it's a global, you know, set of markets. And I, I, I mean, crypto is like globally tradable. Um, but I, I anticipate there will be like platforms that specialize in specific domains. And so that could be trading cards or, um, or like your friend's Netflix login or, (laughs) um, uh, yeah, or, or unique artworks, um, that are, you know, that are maybe even subdivided into their own categories of like photography or, um, algorithmic works or, or whatnot. In relation to thinking of this as an ecosystem, in in a different paper, you used a term that I thought was really interesting, and I was wondering if you could build out on it a little bit, so help me understand it better. You said you, you characterized uh, uh, tokens as a form of promise, and that was really evocative to me because it reminded me of you know work in legal scholarship around the idea of a contract as a promise, but but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about you know what you and your co-authors meant by that, and how you think that informs the way we ought to think about the NFT and broader blockchain ecosystem. Yeah, so I um, I do some writing every Wednesday with um, with two friends of mine, uh, Toby Shore and Laura Lottie. We published we published a bunch of pieces, two of which have been like very popular. One is called Headless Brands, and one is called Squad Wealth. Um, and, uh, two that have been slightly less popular, but still relatively popular. Um, and the the one that you're referring to is called, um, market 
protocol fit. And that is a, so the, the premise with that one is that, um, so it's kind of in response to some of the thinking at the time about like progressive decentralization and like the path that a protocol takes as it's um, maturing and, um, and the, the thinking at that time, I think still the kind of predominant thinking is like, Oh, like a single team, um, they, uh, they progressively decentralize, like they build something and then they like kind of slowly distribute ownership. And, and we were like, okay, what if that doesn't happen? Like, what if we just distribute ownership and, um, and just seed this, this, like this owned, this piece of owned property with a, an idea, like a speculative idea and like, let the, like let that set of owners manifest that idea. And so the promise in that case is, um, is more of a like promise of a possible future. It's like a promise to each other that we're like going to, to, to coordinate, to manufacture this thing together. Um, and so, so, you know, maybe not promise in, in the legal sense. Um, but it's, it's more of like a shared kind of commitment. Um, and the, honestly, a, a couple of people were pretty dismissive of that idea, but I, I feel like we've, we've really been, um, uh, we've been really been validated more recently with one NFTs, um, and specifically the, the loot project, um, loot for adventurers, which has exactly this structure. It's like, Oh, okay. We're going to, to create a set of tokens and distribute them. And, um, those are going to represent objects in a, a speculative world. Um, that's, you know, kind of in the canon of dungeons and dragons or, or fantasy RPGs. But all it is is like a, a, it's a gesture towards this possibility. It's a set of ob, object, you know, objects that have some, um, some uh, distribution um, and rarity, and yeah, and it, that's exactly what happened. You know, the, the the people, the owners, came together and built out the rest of the world. Um, so the promise in that case is, you know, is the, the ownership of, um, yeah, the, the, those people who, who own a piece of this world, um, and have a shared commitment, um, are making a promise to one another to, to kind of fill in the blanks. So Sam, this has been super helpful in improving my understanding of the blockchain, the NFT space, what's going on, and what the possibilities are. I, I wonder if there's if there are things that I should have asked you about that I didn't. I don't think so. I, I guess just one closing thing is that um, I am a great admirer of your work, and it's really a pleasure to to have a chance to 
to connect with you. And um, I, yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess I can say one of the things that I really like about your, um, yeah, like your, your practice or so basically I encountered this, um, this paper that you wrote early on, I, you know, it made the rounds at one point and um, I kind of got fascinated by just how you were working back into the medium. Um, and the, particularly with the, the, the notion that you could like tokenize this thing and then like enact it was like, was, was the thing that really got me. And, and so I was very happy to, to kind of like complete the circle there. And, and and this is, this is one instance where I really feel like you are using the unique affordances of an NFT and the blockchain medium to kind of like work, make an artwork that works back into itself. Like the, there's, there's like closure in that system that felt like really satisfying so like the purchase of the work, you know, the issuance and the purchase of the work, like does the exact thing that you're talking about within, um, within the, you know, the, the conceptual container. Um, so I had a lot of fun just like interacting with you and, and like being the purchaser of the work and, um, and yeah, it's been, it's just been a blast to like see that kind of catalyze a, um, a, a set of thinking and interaction with, um, with the NFT world. Well, I, I can't say how grateful I am because I mean, you've really introduced me to an entirely new way of thinking about my own artistic project. And, and as I like, I've been saying lately, it's like, I, I had no idea that what my conceptual art career needed was NFTs. So thank you so much, Sam, for coming on the show today. I really enjoyed talking with you. I think this is going to be super helpful for anyone interested in this space. And I hope, you know, people in the NFT community and especially people in the legal scholarship community will listen to this episode because um, I think they've got a lot to learn from you. Yeah, thank you, Brian. It's really been a pleasure. Yeah.